Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The New York State budget is now nearly three weeks late. Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt has a look now. What's holding things up? Senate Leader Andrea Stork Cousins says there will not be any agreement on a new spending plan until at least Monday. Unfortunately, it's not this week. But she says they are at the beginning of the end of discussions. I hope that we are able to just get to a point where we... Can, I can come in and tell you that it is the end of the end very, very soon. The Senate leader says the budget is taking longer to settle because Governor Hochul added many policy issues into her spending plan, including revisions to the state's bail reform laws. Hochul is seeking a change that would give judges more discretion to set bail when a defendant is accused of a serious crime. The change would eliminate a clause that requires judges to use the least restrictive means to ensure someone will return for a court date. There were some published reports that a deal had been struck on bail, but Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, after a meeting with the governor, says there's no agreement. I don't think anything has been finalized, unfinalized. Hochul, who has not spoken publicly for several days, issued a statement indicating that another top budget priority for her, housing, may be on the ropes. The governor is seeking a state law to override local zoning laws. It's part of a plan to build 800,000 more housing units over the next several years. The legislature, facing blowback from suburban members, wants to instead offer grants to communities willing to build more homes. Hochul, in her statement, says after weeks of negotiations, the legislature continues to oppose core elements of the housing compact. She says she does not believe that incentives alone will solve the state's affordable housing crisis, but says she's willing to talk about other parts of her plan instead. Senate Leader Stork Cousins would not confirm that any part of the governor's housing plan is now off the table, but she says any final deal must include protections for tenants. I've always said that within the context of all of this, we have to be very clear that we need real tenant protections. So I think those things have always been uh, the driving force around how we proceed with housing. It's a big, big objective. It's an important objective. Stuart Cousins would not say, though, that the tenant protections must include the good cause eviction bill supported by several lawmakers, including the Senate and Assembly chairs of the housing committees. Earlier in the week, advocates rallied at the Capitol in an attempt to see their issues included as part of the budget. Home health care workers and their allies, including Maurice Brown with the Health Care Workers Union, SEIU, rallied for higher wages. We are living through the gravest cost of living crisis of 40 years. And New York faces the worst home care shortage in the nation because the state underpays home care workers. Stork Cousins says raising the minimum wage and indexing future increases to the rate of inflation are still being discussed, as well as Hochul's proposal to open more charter schools and funding for the downstate Metropolitan Transportation Authority. But she says nothing has been decided on anything yet. 
In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk is off this week, which gave me the opportunity to speak with New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. As the state's chief financial officer, I began by asking the Comptroller if he has any involvement in the now nearly three-week-late state budget. Well, it's a very good question because many people assume that the controller, especially being the money person, is intimately involved in the budget negotiations. In fact, the opposite is the case. So the, the decisions on budget really are uh, totally the purview of the legislature and the governor. Obviously, our role is to monitor what's going on. You know, we comment on, on the executive budget when the governor presents it. We'll comment on the final budget agreement when, when that's hammered out. And, of course, once the legislature and the governor decide how much money to spend and where to spend it, we're the ones that have to follow up and make sure the payments are done appropriately. We'll do audits of, you know, of programs and spending. But uh, very much to, to your, uh, uh, you know, very important question, although we, we are involved very much with the spending of the state money. We are not involved with the policy choices on how much money to spend and where to put that money. And I and I respect that. I mean, my my as you know uh, well, I was a legislator for you know for two decades where where the role was having an opinion about every budget item and being involved in, you know to the extent that that rank and file members were involved with negotiations. As controller, I've always had to remind myself I am not a legislator. My, and, and, you know, people come to us, David, all the time and say, take a position on this program. And I said, well, you know what? That's My role is an independent, you know, oversight role. So we, we can't be uh, like a legislative advocate. So uh, short answer, no, we are not directly involved. We, we are not part of the, the three people in the room. Uh, we're not part of, you know, uh, the conferences to, to, to go over, you know, agreements that are being hammered out, but we're watching closely what's going on. And our role in this process now is reminding the legislature and the governor, when we don't have a budget in place, what kind of state programs and spending uh, are in jeopardy without a budget in place, and certainly the issue of our state employees continuing to be paid is very, very important. So we are always putting out uh, notices way in advance as to when we need a budget budget extender so that people can continue to be paid. David, our, our public employees, our state employees that are keeping the state going no matter what, they their paychecks should not be held hostage to what's going on with budget deliberations. Legislators can't get paid under the law, but we have to make sure our state employees are getting paid so they can keep doing their job. We're speaking with State Controller Tom DiNapoli of New York. Tom, let me ask you this, though. When the, you know, the executive budget comes out from the governor and then the final budget will come out, when you look at that, when you do your analysis, would you describe yourself as a fiscal conservative? Well, I, I think there's much about the role of controller that lends itself to being, uh, you know, a bit more cautious uh, on the spending side and even on the revenue side. And, and, I, and I think that's not, you know, unique to, 
You know, to my tenure, I think that's always been uh, the role that the controller's office paid because, look, the, played rather. The, the, the controller is trying to keep a, a view of the big picture. And when, you know, when you're a legislator trying to close down a budget, you know, very often what you need to do is make sure everybody gets a piece of the pie, right, uh, across the state. And, and, and often it's easier to come up with an agreement if you're spending more money, right? You're trying to meet various needs and competing needs. And, and, and that creates, uh, you know, from my point of view, a concern that we don't look as carefully as we should at the implications of spending decisions made today as to what's going to happen next year, two years, four years down the road. And I think that's part of what got New York, uh, you know, behind in years past. Well, the challenge this year, David, is that, you know, the state's been in pretty good shape. You know, tax revenue, as we've been reporting and you've been following, coming in stronger than projected. The federal relief money, as you know, the COVID relief has had a huge impact. Billions of dollars has kept us afloat. But the economy is less certain right now, and the federal money is being spent down. And already, before this budget agreement has been hammered out, the Division of Budget was projecting out-year budget gaps, you know, coming up again. So my concern is when they finally break the logjam and start deciding on the budget, to get the budget done, are they going to be spending more money perhaps than was first intended to keep as many people happy as possible? Or the other consequence, David, which is a pattern in New York, Okay, if we don't quite have the money, we'll borrow more to deal with the needs that you know that we want to want, want to address. So then you run into that problem of creating out your budget gaps number one and number two, contributing to what is already a very very high debt burden that we carry in New York. And if we're going into Hopefully not, but if we are going into recessionary time or an economic downturn, you don't want to be overspending and you don't want to be overobligated on debt. And I and I fear somewhat because there's all these other issues that are being debated. No one's really looking at that big picture of what's happening with the budget per se. That's New York State Controller Tom DiNapoli. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The prosecution in the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Kalen Gillis is being handled by Washington County District Attorney Tony Jordan. Police say Gillis was in a car with friends that night when they turned into the driveway of homeowner Patrick Monahan, who came to the doorway and fired two shots at the vehicle Gillis was riding in, killing her. Monahan, a 65-year-old contractor, is being held on second-degree murder charges. The case is drawing comparisons to the shooting of 16-year-old Ralph Yarl, who was wounded when ringing the wrong doorbell in Kansas City. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard spoke with Jordan about the case in his jurisdiction and the national attention it has gathered. Certainly the, the national attention, I, I would, would not have expected it, except when you look back with the benefit of reflection in, in the rearview mirror type look, is you have two young people who were shot and killed um, because they had gone to the wrong property. So I think when you consider the, you know, the impact for parents, especially, right, it's, it's, it, 
I think that hits very close to home. And, and so I think that probably had a lot to do with the interest level and coverage um, because they're both, you know, the, the, the case out in, in Missouri, I, I believe, but, you know, they're, they're so similar yet in very different um, community settings, but with the same senseless outcome. Does all of this national attention have an impact on the way that you're doing your job in investigating this case? Not really. I mean, we our focus is on uh, the continuing investigation and uh, preparing the case as we would with any other um, criminal matter. It's certainly, when you know it's it's of this significance, um, it. And, and and the the law the law enforcement response I mean the the effort that goes into an investigation of this n- nature um, you know is is not your common case right so there I think Saturday night into Sunday morning um, as I was working on this I so it was tracking for the new discovery law there there are different requirements that we we now have to be sure of and so I was tracking uh, the the agencies that were there and the and the people that were were there um and i there was probably over 40 members of law enforcement um involved in different ways and that doesn't include uh the first responders uh that came out um in response to the 911 call right your your volunteer firefighters in Salem and rescue squad volunteers in Salem and Cambridge that that came to the scene so you know there it it and these were community folks right i mean you have kids from the you know, young adults from the community, so some of them are known to the individuals that were there, and that you know that makes it hard uh, and harder, especially for the first responders. Was Mr. Monahan the suspect in this case? Was he known to your office at all, or did you know him individually? Um, I'd rather not answer questions specific to that at this point. Um. As far as, um, but I, do, I don't know him individually. Have you reached out to the state attorney general's office, or will your office be handling this investigation uh, entirely as it moves forward? No, our office will be handling it. Yep. That's Tony Jordan, Washington County District Attorney. He spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. There's more coverage at WAMC.org. Public schools in New York will no longer be able to use Native American names, mascots, and imagery. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. State education officials first said the use of Native American names and imagery was a problem more than two decades ago. On Tuesday, the Board of Regents voted unanimously to ban the use of such names and mascots. May I have a motion, please? Regent Hackinson, the second, uh, Regent Midler. All those in favor? Aye. Districts will have until the end of the 2025 school year to finalize the changes that take effect May 3rd. Back in November, the New York State Education Department ordered all school districts in the state to remove Indian mascots and associated Native American imagery from the public school system. That order came after a lengthy controversy surrounding the Cambridge Central School District in New York's capital region, which voted to retire its Indians team name, logo, and mascot in June 2021. Then, 
reversed the decision a month later after new school board members took office. Legal battles ensued. At one point, Education Commissioner Betty Rosa declared Cambridge's use of a Native American moniker and imagery violated the State Dignity for All Students Act and had to go. State Education Department Senior Deputy Commissioner James Baldwin. So we got to a point where uh, we have roughly uh, 50 to 60 districts that are still uh, using these mascots, which are offensive and which are not consistent with the kinds of values that we want to see reflected in our public schools. John Kane is a Native American activist who attended Cambridge schools from the third grade until he graduated from high school in 1978. In 2020, Kane traveled from his western New York home to Cambridge to formally request the district change its name and logo. Look, I think this is a pretty good victory. You know, I don't think I don't think people realize what a big deal it is that a state the size and population of New York has uh, has done something like this without lobbying, without you know some really elaborate campaign. This was really done you know by a handful of us who took on Cambridge Central School in the Capital District area. And it ultimately led to um, uh, an order from the commissioner that Cambridge had to drop its, its indigenous mascot. And then ultimately, the commissioner said, you know, acknowledged that she probably has to do this on a statewide basis to prevent other school districts from going through the, the turmoil that Cambridge went through. Kane sits on the New York State Education Department's Indigenous Mascot Advisory Council. I'm glad that Dr. Rosa allowed Native voices to stay involved in the process right up to the current time, because I didn't want this to ever be looked at as just a political thing. We've already seen people like Elise Stefanik, you know, suggest this is somehow some elite, woke, liberal agenda that is being fulfilled by the governor. This had nothing to do with the governor, really had nothing to do with the legislature. This had to do with a fairly apolitical uh, agency whose job it is to is to secure a healthy, safe space for students to, to get educated in the public school system uh, that that decided not only 20 years ago, but now that, uh, that it was time for these schools to stop exploiting one specific people for, uh, for their amusement and entertainment as mascots. Cambridge Central School did not return a request for comment. The ruling makes exceptions for recognized schools that have a standing agreement with recognized tribes. The National Congress of American Indians says it's aware of seven other state bans and says others are under deliberation. Several dozen districts in New York are affected. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. If you want to know from a golden age of comedy, you might be able to take your wife.
please, to a new museum in Ellenville, New York. Plans were recently announced for the Borscht Belt Museum in the Catskills, which will celebrate the Borscht Belt's legacy with artifacts, photos, and memorabilia. Andrew Jacobs, co-president of the museum's board of trustees, sat down for a conversation with the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus. How should we define the Borscht Belt? The Borscht Belt was sort of a three-county area of the Catskills, Orange, Ulster, and Sullivan County, that drew, you know, over the, over the summer months of uh, more than a million people, many of them Jews, who came up here to escape the pestilence and crowding of the city um, and just to enjoy the fresh air and get away from their, their workaday lives. What was the heyday for this particular region and tourism? Well, the, the, the beginnings were sort of in the, in the turn of the century, but the heyday was really the post-war era. I would say the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even a bit of the 70s. And then it sort of started to go downhill in the, in the late 70s. So how did it become such a hotbed for comedy? Well, I think, you know, it's good to take a step back and, and, and look at why people, why especially Jews, came up to the Catskills. And that is because they were really barred from staying at most other hotels in the region. So they had to create their own sort of summer vacation world. Uh, and so, you know, over the course of decades, there were more than a thousand accommodations up here in the Catskills, hotels, boarding houses, uh, bungalow colonies. And the bigger hotels and, and the bungalow bungalow colonies had entertainment, not the entertainment. And so you had over, you know, over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of venues where people were eager to see, you know, entertainment. And so comedians from the city uh, would flock up here in the summer and they could play, you know, two, three hotels um, in a night. And so it really became a, a mecca for stand-up comedians and they really got to sort of uh, cut their teeth uh, up in the Borscht Belt. So tell me a bit about the museum. I understand these plans have been in the works for quite a while. Yes, the museum, the idea for museum has been around for about a dozen years. Um, and so what we've done is we purchased a historic building, uh, an old bank in Allenville. And uh, what's cool about this building, besides the fact that it's gorgeous, it's a 100-year-old bank, is that it has really strong links to the Borschfeld era as the first, one of the first banks that would lend money to the Jewish hotel owners, and it really kind of sustained um, that world. So we uh, we purchased the building, and we're starting the renovations now, and we'll be open to the public in 2025. What are the museum's holdings? I have to imagine acquisitions are continuing, but what will be in it? Well, it's a lot of ephemera. It's a lot of video, audio. The museum, you know, will lean heavily into comedy, so you'll there'll be a lot of uh, comedian footage and audio and the, the sort of one of our big the, the kernel of our collection is a guy named alan frischman who was the building inspector in the town of fallsburg for many years and his job was to condemn the hotels as they were crumbling and one thing he did before the bulldozers came in is he would save objects so and store them in sheds in his backyard so alan's collection is you know will form the basis of our collection, but we also have been collecting items from, from people all across the country who are contacting us um, and you know wanting to donate. Will the museum have any live performance, live comedy when, when it opens? Yes, they will, we will have lots of programming. We have a bunch of space that will, be, will double as community space and performance space. The main bank building has a gorgeous double height sort of banking hall. 
which we will use for public events. So there will be all kinds of uh, programming to keep our message and mission uh, sort of current. Is any of that world of resorts still alive today? I would say very little. There's a, there's a few hotels left, but for the most part, it is gone. I'm hesitating to ask you this question, but for people who might have only known of this world through Dirty Dancing, how accurate is that movie in depicting the world of the Borscht Belt? It's interesting. It's, there's a lot of opinion on that. I would say for the most part, people think it's fairly accurate. The one thing it sort of de-emphasized the Jewish aspect of okay. that world they you know portrayed there. But I think uh, generally it's an adored film and people feel like it does do justice to that era. Are there a lot of people still around who performed in the Borscht Belt who have been able to you know contribute stories and knowledge to these plans? Yeah, we've been hearing from a lot of people. You know, obviously they're older now and we are doing... Oral Histories uh, with StoryCorps, the nonprofit that gathers oral histories. And this summer, that's one of the things we're going to be doing in the pop-up is having a recording booth where people can come and share their stories or maybe just a memorable joke that they recall from that era. Do you have a favorite joke or routine that comes to mind? <laughs> well, I think I think this is a classic. And, you know, it's the complaint about the food at a Borscht Belt Hotel. The food was so terrible, and the portions were so small. <laughs> you can see that one in Annie Hall <laughs> if you want. Yes, exactly. Andrew, anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to add? You know, we encourage people to go to the website and come see us at the end of July for Borscht Fest. And um, we think this is a, a really important subject for, you know, people, for young people and everyone to learn about because the Borscht really is a story of America, you know, and it's a story about sort of a marginalized group that sort of triumphed over bigotry, creating this really incredible summer world and a culture that ended up really influencing mainstream America. Andrew Jacobs is co-president of the Borscht Belt Museum and the Catskills Board of Trustees. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us and best of luck as you go forward. Thanks for having me. A girl, a girl can't call. Girl, you have to wait for the phone to ring, right? And when you, when you finally go on the date, the girl has to be well-dressed, the face has to look nice, the hair has to be in shape. The, the girl has to be the one that's bright and pretty, intelligent, a, a good sport. Howard Johnson's again, hooray, hooray. Excuse me. A girl, a girl, you're 30 years old, you're not married, you're an old maid. A man, he's 90 years old, he's not married, he's a catch. It's a whole different thing. <laughs> And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Shartok. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2316. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.